appreciate that so much. Uh, you know, as human beings, we, for some reason, love weird things. There's something in your heart and my heart that is attracted to stuff that is unusual simply because it's unusual. And I do think there's a certain attraction to Easter for a great many people because they just go, that's weird. Uh, even people who are not necessarily believers wouldn't count themselves as believers. They just, they're sort of familiar with the Easter story because it just seems strange. Most people know some of the outline of the story that God became flesh. He died on the cross. They don't necessarily know why. And then three days later or on the third day, Jesus comes back from the dead. And so some people will be familiar with the story. They'll even make fun of the story, but they know the story because the story strikes people as just so um, bizarre. And it's okay, I suppose, to be attracted to bizarre things because they're bizarre. Uh, recently, I got into something called Fibonacci numbers because I thought this is weird. I've never heard of this before. And so I, I, not until last year, how many of y'all just, before I say anything, you've heard of Fibonacci numbers, you know what those are. Okay, there's quite a few of us in here. I told Jean, I've never, I've never come across this concept before. And she said, I teach my third, fourth, and fifth graders Fibonacci numbers. That made me feel really kind of dumb. But anyway, so if you're in the same boat that I'm in, that's okay. Let me just share something with you that I think is important. You may not know this, but God did not create math so as to help English majors get a better taste of the experience of hell. Okay, so that's... That's not why math is there. Math is just an expression of the way that God created things, the way the world in which we live works. But at the heart of, in a very specific way, Fibonacci numbers demonstrate more broadly that, yeah, uh, there's incredible order in this world. Let me, let me tell you about Fibonacci numbers. Uh, they're 1, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, 21, 34, 55. It's basically you add one, the first number, the second number, you get the third, the third and the fourth number, and then they get the fifth and the fifth and the... You just, it, just, it just goes ad infinitum. Now, here's what's so interesting about this. These numbers were introduced to Europe a long, long time ago by this Italian that we know as Fibonacci, but that wasn't even really exactly his name, but he brought the concept from India some 1,300 years ago. And what's interesting is you see this all over the place in nature. If you look at flowers, the petals are, are 3 or 5 or 8 or 13, all Fibonacci numbers. You cut a banana in, in two and you see it has three sections or an apple, you cut it in half, it has five sections. You look at the rows of seeds and maybe a sunflower or a pine cone, doesn't matter. Always Fibonacci numbers. Really interesting. There's something else that's kind of interesting is you take these Fibonacci numbers, you take a number and divide it by the number before it and always the ratio is 1.618. It's called the golden ratio. And in nature you see this everywhere all of the time. In fact, I talked to a to a guy after the, the service who was in, into engineering, and he said, all of my patents, all of my patents revolve around the Fibonacci numbers, around the golden ratio. I thought, wow, that is really interesting. You, you see, like you see a seashell, the, the spiral, that's, that's the golden ratio. You look at waves in the ocean, golden ratio. You can even see the golden ratio with regards to how branches branch out from other branches or how rivers form along the ground. If you're into stock market stuff, you can see that there's areas of support and resistance. It's always on the golden ratio. And all that does is measure group sentiment with regards to market analysis. How in the world does that have anything to do with Fibonacci numbers? 
Had another person, a scientist, after the service say, yeah, this is really interesting. If you measure a woman from her belly button to the floor using the golden ratio, you can figure her height exactly. He said, I actually asked some friends to do this. I had 10 friends, 10 wives. Measure your wife's belly button. See if this doesn't work. Eight of them, it worked out. The other two was like, what's going on here? Well, one of them was pregnant, so that doesn't count. And then the other, the other lady told her husband, well, she lied about her height. So he went back and measured her height. And it's like, no, it fits. You've been, you haven't been telling me the truth. So when you go to the doctor's office, you don't even have to do the full measure. Just measure the belly button to the floor and it'll tell you everything you need to know. That's Fibonacci numbers. Now, here's what's interesting about all this. What's so unusual about Fibonacci numbers and math in general is while life seems to be unusual, it's not. What's so interesting is while life seems to be random, it's not. While, while life seems to be disorderly, there's incredible radical order that underlies everything. If things seem unusual or weird, they only seem that way. They're not unusual. They're not weird. But when you come to the resurrection, here's where it gets weird on top of weird. It doesn't fit into any numbers. It doesn't fit into any math. It's just off the scale, extraordinarily extraordinary, like we are dealing with some major cosmic grand exception that God became flesh and that in Christ God died for you and for me and that he rose again from the dead. It's an incredibly strange story. And when you take the story into you and you believe it is true, it radically reorients everything ordinary about your life. And we see something extraordinary in all of the different stories that are attached to the grand story of God coming in Christ, dying for you, and then rising from the dead. And today we're going to look at a text that is no exception. There's something really weird in the text that we're going to read, and it's so weird that people typically don't even know that it's weird because it's so weird it doesn't register. Okay, with that, I want to invite you to stand out of respect for God who's speaking to us through his word. The passage is John chapter 20, and we're going to start with verse 1 to set the context. And uh, then uh, we will focus on uh, verses 11 through 15. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary of Magdala went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Okay, so Mary goes to the tomb to mourn her loss. Jesus has died on the cross. He's been put in the ground. She goes to mourn. Everybody knows that Jesus is gone. But when she gets there, she recognizes that the stone has been removed. The tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. But she doesn't know yet that Jesus is risen. She hasn't gotten the message yet. Now, if you think that's kind of weird, somebody coming back from the dead, check out what comes next. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Then they have this little dialogue here. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said. See, there's no grand conspiracy. Even the disciples, Mary, they weren't looking for Jesus to rise from the dead because that was so out of the ordinary, it didn't fit into their math they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. May God bless reading his word. You may be seated. Now, the question that obviously comes up for me, like for some of you, ought to be, okay, 
Mary, you know Jesus. You were just with him a few days ago. Y'all are friends. You've only been with him, I don't know how long, at least a couple of years. Jesus is standing right in front of you. He's speaking to you. And you don't recognize Jesus. What is happening here? There are people who, who see the image of Jesus in tortillas or pretzels or the clouds. The strangest I've ever seen was the image of Jesus on a chest x-ray. People see the image of Jesus everywhere. And Mary, you're the friend of Jesus. He's talking to you. And you don't see the image of Jesus in Jesus. What? Okay, what's, what's happening here? It's not that complicated. Here's what's happening. God obviously is veiling Mary's eyes. So at least for a moment she can't see Jesus. So she can see something else before she sees Jesus. Sometimes God does that. Holds back a little bit so you can see something else before seeing Jesus with a greater clarity. We see something happening uh, along these lines in another post-resurrection story. Chronologically, it's after the story with Mary. But you go over to Luke chapter 24 and you see that there are these disciples. They're on this journey to a little village called Emmaus. They're walking there. It's about seven miles, which probably would take, I don't know, two and a half hours. And, And as they're on the journey, Jesus comes and joins the disciples, but the disciples who ought to know Jesus don't recognize that it's Jesus. Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now, long after uh, this meeting, Jesus is still teaching them. Along the way, he's exposing to them the Bible. He's talking about prophecy, which, by the way, the point of prophecy is not really a geopolitical force in the Middle East, and it's not even the church, and it's not Princess Diana and the big point of biblical prophecy. It's not Cardi B or whatever else you see out there on the Internet. It's Jesus, and Jesus is opening the scriptures that talk about him, but all along the way they don't recognize that it's Jesus, but when Jesus has finished showing them what it is he wants them to see, then they recognize him. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, the Bible says. So you're going to wonder, okay, why, at least initially, did God keep these disciples who knew Jesus from recognizing Jesus? And the answer is pretty simple because God wanted to show them something else before they saw Jesus for being Jesus. Or put a little bit differently, you don't give people the dessert before the meal. Or put a little bit differently, you can't blow somebody's mind and then expect their blown mind to absorb a two and a half hour discourse on the Bible and biblical prophecy. If Jesus would have said, hey, it's me, it's Jesus, and everybody would have gone, oh, that's Jesus. You're alive, you're, you're risen from the dead. You think they're going to want to do a, an Old Testament Bible study? I mean, it's not going to work. It's not going to sink in. But for a time, it's held back from the disciples who they're actually dealing with. And Jesus knows who Jesus is, but Jesus is perfectly comfortable on occasion keeping stuff back so that people can see. And you see this in the Gospels all the time where he doesn't reveal himself or he hides certain things in his teaching. And the reason he hides certain things in his teaching is because he recognizes people take some time to digest stuff before they can get to the dessert, okay? Now, back to Mary. Here's Mary in the garden. She's having this conversation with these strangers dressed in white. And she says, they have taken my Lord away and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Now, Jesus knows. So just as an aside, would Jesus play April Fool's jokes on people? Yes! 
You got to love Jesus. He knows. Hey, woman, who are you looking for? Ha ha. <laughs> you know, you got to love Jesus on this. He's 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 playing. Now he's playful for a point, but he he gets it. He's got to be enjoying this. This is so fun. Ha ha. I rose from the dead. You don't know it yet. Okay, that's what's happening. Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the... Now, remember, Jesus is playful here, but she has a thought concerning who Jesus is, even though she doesn't recognize him. And and the, the Bible could have said, thinking he was the king of kings and lord of lords, thinking he was the you know, conqueror of sin and death. And it's like, no, thinking he was the gardener. Thinking he was the, the gardener. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Thinking he was the gardener. Okay, now wait. Mary knows Jesus. She sees Jesus. He's right in front of her. He's talking to her face to face. She thinks he's the gardener. Why does she think he's the gardener? Well, I want to I want to suggest the, the simplest solution to the question is usually the most obvious uh, answer. And that is, well, because Jesus presented himself as a gardener. She thought he was a gardener because he was at the entrance to the tomb and he was gardening. Or he looked like a gardener. Now you think, well, no, wait. Let's go back to Jesus on the road uh, to Emmaus with the disciples. Jesus presents himself as somebody who doesn't know about the crucifixion, doesn't know about the empty tomb, doesn't know about the missing body. And, and these people who are with him think that he's just a fellow traveler. Why did they think he was just a fellow traveler without knowledge of Jesus? Because Jesus made it seem that way. She thought he was a gardener because, for some reason, he presents himself as a gardener. I, I don't know if he was wearing overalls that, that, you know, had grass stains. I don't know if he had, you know, garden tools in his hands. I don't know if he had, you know, dirt under his fingernails or if he had flowers in his hands or there was vegetables at his feet. But for some reason, Mary thought he was a gardener because Jesus, in some respect or another, presents himself as a gardener. Now, is Jesus trying to teach Mary and, and thus teach us something about who he is and I would say yes because this image absolutely does not fit it doesn't seem to be consistent with one of the greatest events in the history of the world the resurrection of Jesus from the dead because if I were basically presenting the picture of the resurrection from the dead if I were a Hollywood director the scene would not look like this if I were a director I would probably have Jesus played by Chris Hemsworth, also known as Thor. And I would have the camera set up, you know, in the tomb, and then there's going to be lightning coming out of his hair and his eyes and his fingertips. And Jesus, with a double-fisted punch, blows the whole boulder apart into a million pieces. And then Jesus rises up and flies out of the tomb into the air, comes down with a thud on the ground, Beats his chest like an NBA player who's just done a tomahawk dunk and says, the devil got nothing on me. Right? And then Mary falls at Jesus' feet, face down. You are the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. That, but I'm not the director. Obviously, Jesus has not seen a Marvel movie. Jesus obviously subscribes to Better Homes and Gardens because he takes a page out of the middle of that magazine and he just presents himself as not the supreme Asgardian, but the regular gardener. Why? Here's what I would suggest. Jesus, as we all know, is a master storyteller. 
He recognizes that people will remember stories like the prodigal son or images like the broken bread or actions like foot washing a lot more than a bunch of facts and figures and data. I think Jesus is communicating something. I think God in his providence by inspiring this moment is communicating something. Why is Jesus presenting himself as the gardener? Well, I think in order to understand what Jesus is communicating, what God through his word is communicating, we have to go back to the story between God and humankind. And if you're going to understand the story between God and humankind, you've got to go back to the beginning of the story. And you might remember at the beginning of the story, the scripture tells us there was a, there was a time and a place where there was perfect harmony between God and people, between people and people. There was a place that was pure joy and goodness. There was a place where it was unthinkable that any promise would go unfulfilled. And the Bible says this place, this wonderful place, describes it as, you know what? A garden. But you also know the rest of the story that eventually humankind decides to rebel and because we rebel sin enters the picture and when sin enters the picture death follows and when sin and death enter into the garden the lusciousness of the garden is lost and the bible says the ground was cursed and thorns and thistles grow up and adam and eve are cast out of the garden and the garden is overgrown and the weeds begin to take over, weeds of hunger and injustice, enmity, weeds that look like marital strife, weeds that look like the murder of a brother. And all of a sudden, because of the rebellion of humankind, the garden is lost and all the hope and all the promise and all the potential and all the love of the garden is gone until a second Adam comes along. See, the name of the first gardener was Adam. But there's a second gardener who comes, a second Adam. And when this gardener leaves the garden tomb, he hangs around and presents himself as gardener. Kind of interesting. Jesus comes to restore what has been lost. And anyone who follows after him, when they see this broken, bruised, battered, shattered world, they don't despair and they don't get discouraged and they simply enter into the work of the second gardener who came to restore humankind's relationship with the Father and thereby with one another, changing lives and changing the world one person at a time. And somehow, in some way, along the way, the church sort of lost its focus, lost its sense of mission, lost the final chapter that Jesus had written. And it's a chapter that goes on forever and ever, and the chapter's title is Reconciliation. Somehow, in some way, we just kind of got to the point as the body of Christ, who has Christ as the head, we got to the point where we got a little bit afraid of the world, and we started thinking, let's just go ahead and gather together in little huddles, separate from the world, and we're just going to be scared of the world and we're going to pray, God, when are you going to beam us out of this mess? And the whole time, what the gardener does is he invites us into his ministry of reconciliation, which is to, in a sacrificial way, reconnect people with the Father, reconnect people with one another, and thereby change the world one life at a time. 
That's the ministry of reconciliation that has been given to us. Let me just spell it out to you real plainly. The ministry of the church is the ministry of reconciliation, to bring people together into a unity with God and with one another, changing people and the world in the process. And all of that is so very clearly and tightly tied to Holy Week. So clearly, tightly tied to the reality that Jesus Christ died on the cross for us and then he rose again from the dead. See, Jesus didn't die on accident. His life was not taken from him. He laid it down for you and for me. Let me, let me draw some connections. Let me make sure that the dots are connected for you. In John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says rather famously, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A little later, Jesus elaborates. I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. How do we know that Jesus didn't die some unfortunate, tragic, accidental, necessary death? How do we know that Jesus laid his life down? How do we know it wasn't taken from him? One day, your life and my life, they're going to be taken from us in some respect or another, maybe by force, maybe just by natural causes, maybe at a time that we would like, maybe at a time we don't like. Our lives get taken from us because the wages of sin is death. How do we know that Jesus, though, uniquely laid down his life? It wasn't an accident. How do we know in accordance with the Father's will, Jesus, by his own authority, laid his life down? Here's how we know. Jesus rose from the dead. That's how you know that what Jesus did on the cross was intentional, purposeful, and effective. He laid his life down, and then he took it up again. The fact that he took it up again demonstrates to you and me he laid it down. I was talking to a friend before the service, and I'd said, it sort of hit me in the first service that it's so wonderful to have the resurrection because I know the forgiveness is complete. The covering of my sin is absolute. Have you ever apologized to somebody? You did something that was wrong. I've done that once or twice, you know. And then you apologize. I'm sorry I was wrong. And then they forgive you. But then you kind of go, did they really? Or am I going to have to apologize again? And then after the tenth time, they tell you, you don't need to keep apologizing. And the reason they tell you you don't need to keep apologizing is because it took you nine times before the forgiveness was complete. Or you kind of felt that way in granting forgiveness to somebody else. How do you know that you stand absolutely, totally forgiven, thoroughly clean? The resurrection. The forgiveness that God has given you is absolute, total, complete. Can't argue with it. Because he took his life up again. And he did this for everybody. Let's go back to the scripture here. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. It's a very famous passage with regards to this ministry of reconciliation. Paul there says, For Christ's love compels us but because we are convinced that one died for all. That one is Jesus. He died for all. So I've run into people that say, Well, yeah, that's the apostle Paul. He made stuff up or whatever. And I disagree with that. But Jesus makes it plain himself back in the passage we just looked at. Jesus again says, I lay my life down for the sheep, but I have other sheep that are not from the sheep pen. In other words, he didn't come just for the Jewish sheep. He wanted to be a shepherd of all the sheep, not just in a little location in the, in the Middle East, but globally. Jesus announces this. He says, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. 
This is why the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. This is not an accidental occurrence. This is a grand plan. In accordance with the Father's will, by the authority of Jesus, He lays His life down once for all, for all people. Going back to the ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died on purpose, not an accident. We're convinced that one died on purpose for all. So from now on, since we have the point of Holy Week, since we get it that Christ was, Christ died, He was buried, and He rose again from the dead for our sins, since we get this incomparable love of God given to us so as to meet our practical needs of forgiveness and pardon, since we see all this, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Because when you see the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it changes the way you see everybody else, and then you enter into Christ's ministry of reconciliation because it's His love that compels you. Moving on, all this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us, us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling to the world Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against Him, and He has committed to us the message of reconciliation We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We are now the extensions, as the body of Christ, we're now the extensions of the laying down our lives, reconciling work of Jesus Christ himself. Now the reason I bring all this up is to say, when you understand, as a believer, when you understand the message of Holy Week, the death, burial, and resurrection, that this was Jesus in accordance with the Father's will, by his own authority, laying his life down for you, and demonstrating that that sacrifice has been accepted because of the resurrection, when you get all of this... You will naturally, appropriately respond by joining with the gardener with regards to returning the world to its original rightful condition. Where you don't back down from a world that would otherwise be scary. Where in accordance with the gospel, representing Jesus to the world, you help to remove the weeds of injustice and poverty and hunger and mistrust, especially as it pertains to God. That's the appropriate response. I know every year around Easter, you know, people come like, woo, that was great. I enjoyed that. And, you know, what got into Alan this morning? I don't know. I wish that there would be more breakdowns in the future. You know, that kind of thing. I don't know how people respond, but, you know, hey, that was a great time. See you next year. The appropriate response for those of us who believe is to intentionally, in keeping with our gifts and talents and calling, to join together with Jesus, the Grand Gardener, in His endeavor to change people's lives by reconnecting them with the Father, to advance the gospel in practical ways. That's the response. And the reason we respond this way is because when you get the gospel, you see that everyone Jesus has ever laid eyes on is someone for whom Jesus died. You don't ever meet somebody that God didn't look at and say, that's not worth my son. It's a game changer when you get the message of Holy Week. Uh, Look, I I learned a long time ago in college, Economics 101, something is worth what people are willing to pay for it. Then I learned in life, things college didn't teach me, and that is there's a sucker born every minute. Uh, People will pay too much for something. It's true. But when you're dealing with an expert, somebody who knows what they're doing, then they pay what something's worth or they feel like they even get a bargain. Elon Musk pays $1.5 billion for Bitcoin. People regard him as, you know, pretty financially astute kind of person. We're going to buy Bitcoin because he did. Now, I'm not, this is not financial advice. This is only for entertainment purposes or whatever they say it on the 
you know, YouTube or whatever. Don't, don't go out and buy Bitcoin because you somehow think that was the message in the sermon. Here's the point. Experts pay for things and you say, well, that's what it must be worth. God, he's been around for a long time. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the human condition. And yet still he sends his son. And when you see that Jesus Christ has sent his son for you, and when you see that he has sent his son for other people, and when you see his agenda that Jesus Christ carries out by his own broken body and shed blood is to bring in all of these sheep, you start looking at people a little bit differently and you think, that's worth my time. And that's worth my effort and that's worth my sacrifice. In this ministry of reconciliation, you start seeing people in a cruciform way. And it's not just that you see the value of people through the cross. You also see Jesus as valuable enough for you to be obedient. We'll put it a little bit differently. We value things because they're valuable, but we also value things because those we value value them. Even if you don't see the intrinsic value in something, you're still going to value something because someone you value values it. You love the people that you love if they love them. Uh, If you love me... You'll love my wife. You'll love my kids. You'll love my parents. If you love me, you'll even love my dogs because I love my dogs. When you see the love that Jesus has for you and then you see the love that Jesus has for others and then you love Jesus, it's not just the love of Christ for others that compels you. It's your love for Christ that compels you. The Greek read in either way. So there's this double-edged movement that compels us to be ministers of reconciliation. I love people, and I also love Jesus who loves people. And so it becomes unthinkable in light of the second gardener not to participate with him in this ministry of reconciliation. I go through all of this to simply say, if you are a believer, if you take Easter seriously, if you believe in the cross, if you believe in the resurrection, then the only appropriate response is a full-bodied one where you cooperate together with Jesus in his endeavor to reconnect people with the Father and make things right in this world. That's the response he's looking for from you if you're a believer. I don't know what everybody's shape is or gifts. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are, you've got a gift of mercy. Some of you, you've got connections with people I could never connect with. Some of you, you've got special management gifts. I don't know what everybody's gift and shape and talent is, but I know this much. If you're responding to Easter, if you really believe, You are actively saying to Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the second gardener, the good shepherd, how can I participate with you in your endeavor to make things right and to restore this world into its right and appropriate condition? How can I partner together with you, Jesus, to bring the message to people that the enmity, the war between God and humankind, it's been resolved in Christ? That's your response, or it should be. Now, if you have not yet responded to the gospel, if you've not yet accepted the message, then here's the response for you. You need to believe. I mean, it's not that complicated. If you have yet to receive the truth that the enmity or the war between God and humankind is over because of what Jesus Christ has done for you intentionally by laying his life down, I can't think of a better response than to simply receive that as true. Because I want to tell you, I've never met somebody who came to Christ, no matter how old they are. I've never met somebody who came to Christ that said, you know, I came to faith in Jesus too soon. You know, I I wish I'd waited another decade. I enjoyed fighting with God and other people. The fight's over. Jesus is resolved. All you need to do is receive the peace 
that he's established in his body that he laid down for you. I came across this story. I thought it was kind of interesting. There's this guy, Hiru Onada. He was the last Japanese soldier to surrender after World War II. Surrendered on May 10th, 1974. Like almost 30 years after the war was over. He was left, at the age of 22, he was left with three other soldiers, four of them on this island, Lu, Lu Bang in the Philippines. And the commanding officer said, y'all just keep fighting. No matter what happens, keep fighting. And so they did. One of the soldiers... Um, Surrendered in 1950. Another one died in a local skirmish in 1954. Another one got killed, actually, in 72. And the whole time, Onada keeps fighting this war that is long since over. About 13,000 people were involved trying to get him to surrender, trying to capture him, trying to get him give up. Over a half million dollars was spent. They, they dropped leaflets all over the jungle explaining not only is the war over, but there's friendship now between the United States and Japan. We're allies. We're buds. And he kept fighting and kept fighting until finally he surrendered a rusty sword to a former commander of his who found him and said, listen, the war's over. Come home. We're going to give you a pardon. We just want you to go back to Japan. When he finally went to Japan, back home, he was 52. He'd been left on the island when he was 22. And when he finally got back to his homeland, he said in a rather understated sort of a way, during my time in the jungle, not much good came of it. Some of you, you like, you're just out there like fighting. Why are you fighting with God? The victory's over. He died for you. Why are you fighting with people? Don't you know the, the gardener's come and he's defeated sin and death for you? Don't you know that he wants to make things right? Don't you know that, yes, he is a patient person. He, he'll take those weeds that are in your heart. Listen, I'm, I'm a pastor, okay, I've been a Christian for almost, a, well, like almost half a century. It's crazy to think that. And I know that the gardener's still pulling weeds of pride out of my life and other things. But he's patient. He's patient with you and he's patient through you. And for some of you, you've heard this sort of message before. And he's still waiting and you're, I don't know what some of you are thinking. If you're thinking, well, I just need to get my act cleaned up first and get all the weeds out, and then I'll come when I'm good and ready. You know what? You'll never be ready. But Jesus, by his word, will make you ready. He doesn't wait for you to cross the finish line to get started. You can start right where you are, recognizing that he's already crossed the finish line for you. He's done everything for you. He wants to change your life for the better. He'll be patient with you. And so if you've never received this good news that Jesus, in accordance with the will of the Father, in this grand plan, by His authority, laid His life down for you, will you receive that? And it's not just for you. There are other people around you in your life that are probably waiting for that to happen. It wasn't just about Onada. During the time that he was fighting a war that was long since over, he killed about 30 other people on the island, bystanders, local farmers. When the war is not over for you, guess what happens? There's collateral damage. Some of you, you may have a son or a daughter or a grandson, granddaughter, or a spouse, and you're killing them by fighting in a war that is over. Accept his peace, if not for your own benefit. Do it for the benefit of other people around you too. So if you haven't received the truth, just 
do it this morning. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around. If you're here today and you would say, you know, and you don't have to lift your hand, okay? It's just between you and the Lord. If you would say, you know, I know that I've been, I've been fighting after, I've been fighting God and, and I shouldn't. I've been treating myself as God. I've rebelled. There was sin and there's death and there's been death in relationships and there's been death of hopes and dreams and there's just kind of been a dying inside of my life. And I know that I've just gotten off track. I've gone astray. And I know I need forgiveness. I know that. And I also know that Jesus Christ came, that I would be forgiven, that I could be pardoned, that I could come home. If, if that's you and, you and you're ready to receive Christ, I'm just going to lead you in a prayer right where you are. You just say this between you and God. God, I know I've sinned. I know I've fallen short. I know I've done wrong. But I also know that you want to forgive me and that you want me to go home, to come home to you. And so, Lord, I, I surrender. I accept Christ as my Savior and Lord. I accept what Jesus did for me uh, on that cross some 2,000 years ago. And I know He died for my sin. I know He laid His life down because He rose from the dead. He took it up again. And so, God, I just want to say I trust Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I don't know all the implications of that. All I know is, God, I thank You for Your grace. Thank You for accepting me as I am. And also, Lord, thank You. For, for being the ultimate gardener who's going to remove stuff from my life that just doesn't need to be there. I know I've not only hurt myself, I've hurt other people around me, but I, I know I stand forgiven. But I know you love me so much that you receive me where I am, but you love me enough to not leave me that way. And I'm just so glad, God, that you're my God, that Jesus is my Savior, and that you've got a plan for my life. Thank you for saving me. And I look forward to seeing what you do next in me. In Jesus' name, amen.